Amazon announced the closing of over 60 retail locations, leaving Whole Foods and Amazon Fresh locations open, but ending its foray into Amazon Books, Four Star, and pop-up stores. Markets struggled to digest a flood of news resulting from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, with major indices doing reasonably well, even as oil hit $110 per barrel. It had been $75 on December 31st. In this edition of Commerce Code, Fintech Innovation and Open Banking, a conversation with Michelle Bayo of Finnovator. Dan Carell here, and this is Commerce Code, brought to you by DCA, the Digital Commerce Alliance. Thanks for joining us for insights into the evolving world of digital commerce. The Russian ruble dropped heavily this week. Prior to the Ukraine invasion, it was trading around 80 rubles to the dollar. It now sits at 110, as some Russian banks experience a run from their depositors. Russian central bank assets were frozen, and many Russian banks were removed from the SWIFT system, while major Western brands announced cessation of business in and with Russia. That list is growing too fast to track, but includes H&M, IKEA, Apple, Nokia, DHL, pretty much every major car company, Harley-Davidson, Boeing, most global sports organizations, Nike, Puma, and Adidas, to name at least some. British Petroleum, or now BP, announced that it has disinvested from Gazprom, though the oil major wasn't clear on how or to whom it could sell that asset. On the other side of the rupture between Russia and Western democracies, Russian oligarchs began to move to sell some of their assets, but it is similarly unclear who would or could buy them since there are sanctions on those who do business with those oligarchs. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies this week held their value for the most part, touted as a means for Ukrainians to raise money, while also presenting an option for Russians to get out of the ruble and potentially allowing the Russian government or its proxies to preserve some value outside the purview of hostile foreign governments. Today on the show, we'll learn more about fintechs collaborating with traditional banks by speaking with Michelle Bayo. CEO and founder of Finnovator. Finnovator is a strategy and consulting firm working in fintech marketing, open banking, payments and prepaid solutions, challenger banks, microloans, rewards, and loyalty. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us today on Commerce Code. Uh, where are you joining us from? Hey, Dan. Very happy to be here. I'm calling in from Toronto, Canada. Great. Wonderful. Well, it's great to have you on the show. So you are a founder, you're an entrepreneur, you saw an opportunity here. And so I'd love to just get your angle on what are some of the opportunities or some of the benefits of these fintech to bank partnerships from your point of view? Yeah, I foresee that banks have the customers, especially in Canada and in the U.S., what the fintechs have is hyper-focused products on the gap, the things that we're missing in our current banking system things they're learning from the UK open banking, Australian open banking, Singapore, Brazil, and elsewhere. And the fintechs have really evolved to ensure that their products are very consumer focused. So when you think of Uber and taxis 10 years ago, there's many people who were just satisfied with taxis, though they were not, they just didn't have another option. But as you saw the disruption and opportunity that came through Uber, it not only gave a better experience to the consumer, 
It also gave a whole opportunity to a market to allow people to gig work. So there's just a mass evolution and innovation that comes from disruption. And I think what fintechs are doing is disruptive to drive innovation, but for them to get customers, the best way is for fintechs and banks to work together to kind of fill the gaps that the banks have to give the customers the services they need. I am from some cold places, and I think the coldest I've ever been has been several instances of attempting to hail a taxi uh, at the wrong moment in New York. This is a decade or more ago, of course, underdressed and you know under the wrong circumstances. So you know you're absolutely right. Sometimes there are systems that appear to be working well that actually just don't work at all, but nobody really recognizes it because they haven't seen the alternative. So from your perspective, then, what are the best strategies that fintechs can implement to make sure they're sort of putting their products, their services to the test with that goal of hitting new customers and innovating in ways that really open up some markets? I'm a big believer in a couple things. One, diversity. When you're building a product, if you have diverse voices on the inside as you're building that at the executive level or at the board level or everywhere, you're going to get questions you normally would not get, and it will help your product be better to serve more people in different markets. And I think that's the genius part of creating a product with many voices at the table. And then really having kind of that Six Sigma KPI infrastructure to help you get there in a methodical way and everyone have their piece of getting it to that market. And then continuous iteration, you know, talk to your customers, be a customer, have your employees be customers and continuously learn to where you can always improve. Given everything that's happened in the industry in the last few years, how has all of that COVID-19 and the response impacted payments, fintech and open banking in Canada in particular? I think everywhere COVID has accelerated digital adoption, especially in Canada, because that activation of that chip that sits on everybody's credit card in Canada has been there since 2015. But the amount of people who used it was still very light up until COVID. And what you saw is because people didn't want to touch the terminal, you saw a lot of people start to tap their card. And in that move, actually, Visa and MasterCard increased the tap limits because the usability came very obvious. And not only did tap have continuous mass growth since the pandemic, but also wallets and having your card in your Apple wallet, having your card embedded in your Samsung, in your Google it's become very popular. And even shopping online, as we all know, it has been growing over the years, but throughout the pandemic, many people have moved to online shopping, not to leave their house. And through that, what you're seeing is a lot of PayPal, as well as different payment methods take up through that online shopping infrastructure. And consumers are just a little bit more savvy when it comes to payments. They don't want to touch cash. They don't want to touch the terminal. So you're seeing this revolution move to tap and wallet phone payments. You mentioned before Asia's position and how far ahead Asia was in certain areas that you noticed that. And that was part of your kind of assessment in founding Finnovator. And so, you know, as you talk about adoption in, in North America, this is calling for speculation, but do you think North American consumers and markets and systems will catch up with what's going on in Asia? Or do you think that these two things diverge and they're just different over time? Yeah. When you look at the Asian infrastructure, right, the reason why they're so far ahead of us is because they didn't have credit cards. They were still using cash. 
So it's kind of similar to that time where digital, you know, cell phone towers were very new. And North America had a whole bunch of analog towers. We were first to market. And then we had to move everything to digital. So it took us longer. And Europe was ahead of us because they pretty much started with digital cell phone towers. So in Asia, they very much were still on cash-based payment infrastructure. And therefore, there was a mass amount of the population who were not having the same payment accessibility. So when they got to phones and QR codes as payments, it enabled a large group of society to have access to payments. They leapfrogged the North American market because they didn't have credit cards to start. So I think we will adopt to get to that place just because it's frictionless. You don't need all of those POS infrastructures that are different players all across all of North America and then have to do a whole payment integration if everything is embedded onto a phone or an iPad for payment through QR, through tap to pay. So it's going to be a continuous evolution. Frictionless is so important just in terms of ease of use and, and actually getting the payment into a channel. And probably I'm not the only American who, at least at one time, and I haven't been back to Canada for a couple of years because of COVID, but gas stations, in particular the pumps, were not happy with American credit cards for many years. I can attest from bitter personal experience. So you had some of this narrative in mind, Michelle, as you were founding Finnovator in middle of 2019. Would love to know a little more about that. And in particular, kind of what's the mission from your perspective? You know, what did you see and what did you set out to do with the mission of the organization? I very much started the organization to try and help these relationships blossom because fintechs are at an extremely fast pace and they want to move and they want to create and they want to grab market share, but they don't understand the, the pace of the banks, the compliance of the banks, the length of time it takes for the trust to be built for a fintech to work with a bank. And it kind of takes a translator to get both sides to see each other in a way that they can partner and help their customers faster, as well as just pure insights on what's happening on a global perspective in regards to open banking and how it's changing the relationship between data being owned by the entity and data being owned by the consumer. And to me, it's a human data right for you to be able to direct your information to go somewhere to get you the product or service you need. In Canada, with telco, if you had a cell phone and you were with a provider and you wanted to move to a different provider because they were offering you better service, you had to switch phone numbers. You were, first of all, locked in a contract for three years. But once that contract was up, you can move to another provider, but it was going to potentially save you a little bit of money, but it would be a huge headache because your cell phone number, which you were attached to for however many years, is now going to change to a brand new number. And you're going to have to educate all these people about it. So we started having data portability of your cell number back in 2015. And that was the first time that Canadians were able to take that phone number, that possession, and move it over to another provider without any penalty. And that is the mobility of data. So I think to me, open banking is the freedom of choice, as well as the opportunity to drive innovation competition and give humans back the right to their data. 
I think that's a great analogy, actually, to the portability of cell phone numbers. And and I don't offhand recall what year that happened in the U.S., but I would have said, Michelle, it was around what you were saying, give or take. And I think we've all forgotten about that little episode by now. And we just assume that you can keep your cell phone number and you can move providers. But in truth, it hadn't been that way. And it did make a difference. Yeah, I think it's really important for people to grasp that open banking is a horrible name, right? I think it, it maybe instills some fear in people, but it's actually a more secure infrastructure that instead of using what's called screen scraping, like an aggregator, they don't want to do that. They want to get regulated and they want to be compliant and they want an API, like a secure data access point to the banks to pull the five pieces of data that they need to give you the product that you deserve. And then if you have to delete that data or you want them to, they will because they're getting to know you. But to get you in the system without friction, they need a safe and secure way to do it. And that's actually what Open Banking's entire premise is. Your company, Finnovator, focuses on bridging the gap between fintechs and traditional banks. You're helping these two partner and deliver innovative products and services to customers. I'm just wondering how you wound up in this space. I actually did 20 years in the corporate space. So six years in telco, eight years in online shopping, affiliate marketing. I ran Alaska Lufthansa, Delta United online shopping mall platforms. And then I jumped into the payment space, the prepaid payment space, specifically working for a major company globally and running the Canadian sales and marketing team and launching their B2B division. And they're a gift card organization that facilitates the activation of gift cards, got to really see the powerful effect that financial services can have for the underserved, underbanked, and new immigrants, and actually jumped into the blockchain space, focused on digital ID and consent on blockchain, and got very enamored with what open banking could bring to Canadians, and actually jumped out to start my own organization in July of 2019, just before the pandemic, and largely to take everything that I had learned from blockchain telco, online shopping, and prepaid and bring it together to help fintechs and banks understand each other and work closer together to get to the innovation that was happening and is still happening five to 10 years ahead of us in the Asian market. Thank you so much for your time and your thoughts today. We really appreciate it. And best of luck to everything you're doing there at Finnovator. Thank you so much, Dan. It's been such a pleasure and looking forward to another episode one day soon. Coming right up, closing thoughts on open collaboration. Michelle and I were talking about open collaboration, getting fintechs and banks to work together in an open banking structure. I want to talk about collaboration in another part of the corporate world for a minute. Some context for my story, big companies and politics just don't mix. I've been a consultant to multinationals since late in the last century, and particularly for publicly listed multinationals, there is just zero interest in getting involved in politics, and especially some other countries' politics. So since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the corporate world has lived in a serve-the-shareholder, politics-what-politics zone. This has been wishful thinking at times. It's been willful ignorance at others. When companies appeared to take a political stand, executives were pretty clear that they were listening to their customers or their employees, but the company really had no interest in taking a position. They were just trying to run a business. Well, someone on the internet said that Vladimir Putin ended German pacifism and Swiss neutrality in a single weekend. Less noticed, but possibly just as important, he ended corporate neutrality too. 
In the intro, I listed off just a few of the companies that have ceased operations in Russia, and we can expect that list to keep growing. Corporate neutrality is one of the reasons you don't often see companies collaborating on any but the most obvious philanthropic projects. They don't want to ruffle any feathers. Working with other organizations is complicated, so it's easier to make a donation from the corporate foundation and let the charity sort it out. I'm not saying companies are wrong to do this. It's complicated. But sometimes clarity arrives and the world feels less complicated, at least for a while. So I'm happy to report that I just got off a conference call for a project in which dozens of global companies and law firms are putting together a complex Ukraine relief project slated to be carried out in about a month. It's a hive of activity. Everyone's just working with everyone else. The work is getting done. And while I'm sure some mistakes will be made, I'm equally sure that good things are going to happen. As to collaboration, normally there's nothing slower and sometimes nothing dumber than a group of smart people, quote, working together. I mean, that's what a legislature is. But this thing is on a rocket ride because there's high motivation. But I would say even more importantly, there's what military strategists call commander's intent. The players all know what they're trying to get done, and they feel empowered to collaborate creatively to do it. I'm also sure my conference call was one of dozens or possibly hundreds happening around the world between people in industries trying to figure out how to use their skills and their resources to help the people of Ukraine. I don't mean to suggest that ragtag bands of corporate do-gooders are going to neutralize the Russian army. They won't, because they can't. But the bits of good they can do is part of what we all need right now. To find out more about the latest trends in digital commerce and digital advertising, check out our website at www.digcomall.org. For the Digital Commerce Alliance, take care of yourself and take care of each other, even people who are half a world away. God bless you. This is Dan Carell, signing off.